0: You get what you put into it. Obviously, like we said, don't overwork yourself, but understand that it is a short period of time that you should be working decently hard.
1: Welcome back to Training Room Talk, powered by Precision Performance Physical Therapy. Here we talk about pain, rehab, performance, and education. If you have questions about the nuance that we dive into, please reach out to us. We would love to talk to you about it. Apart from that, we hope you guys enjoy today's episode, and we hope everyone stays safe and is staying healthy. All right, guys, welcome back. So we are going to do the last episode of um, our Student Struggles series. Uh, I have Hannah here. Hey, guys. Um, And so, yeah, we're just going to knock out this last episode, and we're going to be talking a little bit about, this is going to be kind of soft skills, or considerations in terms of how to prepare yourself for a clinical rotation but not from a like hands-on perspective or from a content like knowledge perspective so obviously in the last episode we talked about some manual therapy techniques or some evaluation techniques or things that you want to think about maybe brushing up on this is going to be more soft skills so we're going to talk about kind of communication Um, How that maybe differs from what you learn in school or how you came in in terms of preparedness versus, you know, what it actually looks like in the clinic. Um, But then also maybe some soft skills for yourself, like how am I going to manage stress or what are going to be some challenges from a other skill perspective? You know, balancing two patients at once, balancing documentation, system learning and you know, seeing patients at the same time and and how you approach all that stuff. So we're going to dive into all that stuff. Hopefully you get some kind of valuable insight on what some of the challenges are and maybe some tips and tricks on how to navigate some of that stuff. So it sounds like um, you and I both agree that communication is one of the most important skills just as PTs, but then because it's so important as PTs, it's probably overlooked or underdeveloped from a student standpoint
0: yes I would agree with that (laughs) Um, so
1: what do you think like coming in maybe not to this clinical but just to your clinical experience in general like what is your insight that you have in terms of communication and the value of that and maybe how prepared you felt about your ability to communicate going into clinicals
0: yeah I feel like it's it's definitely one of the most important things. And I feel like it's one of those things that's always talked about, but never really practiced in school, like the hands-on stuff is. Like, so my program was, and I'm pretty sure like all programs now are big on the psychosocial, psycho, biopsychosocial model, and like hit on that really hard. But then it's like, well, I know that that's important, but what do I do? So for me, um, when it comes to communication, I like to observe how others communicate as well. Um, so in, I've had experience in the past communicating or um, observing communication and thinking, okay, I'm probably not gonna kind of use those words or that language or that kind of thing, um, tucking that in the back of my mind. And then with others, I observe and I'm like, I really like how they said that, or even the nonverbals, that kind of thing. Um, So, yeah, I think it's important to not only focus on, like, learning from others the hands-on stuff, but also learning the communication stuff. And what I like about being here is that there's four of you guys. You're all very different. You're all great at communicating, but you stay yourselves in that. So I think it's also important to understand, like, Yes, like learn how to communicate, practice it, but like still be yourself.
1: Yeah, and I feel like that's that's hard to do and it's hard for even school to prepare you um, in a lot of ways. Like you mentioned the biopsychosocial model and you kind of get exposed to that and you learn, you know, that all of these different aspects of what make a human being a human being may influence the pain that they feel and how they cope with that, um, and and that you know plays a giant role in your evaluation and in how you go about you know treating someone from ruling in or out diagnoses or contributing factors to what someone's experiences with their pain or their injury. But then at the same time, you recognize how meaningful your words can be as a medical provider. And like you said, you've seen some interactions where you're like, hey, maybe I wouldn't use those words and, Mm. you know, referring to someone's body as, you know, damaged or fragile or weak or, you know, giving them those perceptions in what you say um, or even, you know, maybe implying dependency on certain interventions or certain modalities that will shift the way someone views their pain or views what they need in order to get better. And this is something that you know school and I you said most programs I don't know if most prog- most I
0: think that's just my hope <laughs> that's your
1: hope yeah and that's my hope too but um, the programs that do introduce those concepts uh, are great but it, it's difficult to know like what do I do with that information mm-hmm. now like how does that really change what I do and it might be a little easier to recognize the effect of how it changes things from like a hard skills standpoint like oh I'm going to use less passive modalities and use more active strategies because that'll promote you know a more active coping strategy which maybe will reduce disability long term because it'll reduce kinesiophobia and you know some of that fear avoidance behavior so that's a very clear thing that I can do in my 60 minutes I spend fewer of those minutes doing passive things and more of those minutes doing active things but that's a very easy to see kind of change or shift but then when you're wondering like how do i explain to someone you know like how do i craft the whole interaction from the moment they walk into the mm-hmm. door until the moment that they walk out to support you know the human or the person in their experience in recognizing that everything That has to do to set the scene or you know create kind of the context behind the experience is going to also drive how they interpret and how they you know it'll drive their outcomes to some degree Um, and that's something that you can use to your advantage in terms of encouraging behavior change and better coping strategies and reducing pain and you know an easier more seamless rehab process but like how you do it is not something that is that you can necessarily read in a book, right? It's not going to tell yeah. you what color to paint the walls, <laughs> what your opening line should be. It's not going to tell you how to, you know, and it shouldn't because all of this thing is going to be, all of these factors are going to be incredibly dependent on the patient and the individual experience of the person. But that makes it even harder because then you're like, How do I then go the next step to craft the way I shape narratives to the individual and what they're saying to me? And what questions do I even ask in order to get at the beliefs and the thought processes that I would need to in order to get information to shape the experience to what they need it to be? So that's a lot of complexity there that goes into how you speak and how you interact with someone and probably outside of being a physical therapist or a healthcare provider who is very aware of this, has there ever been a situation in your life where you've put that much thought (laughs) into what you're saying and how you're saying it?
0: No. No, there there
1: just is never, like I can't even think of an example. Maybe a guy walking up to a girl in the bar, he may put as much attention into like, how am I gonna say this? What am I gonna say? What's gonna be the exact presentation? Like, I honestly, other than that, can't think of a, a situation in day-to-day life where you're really that aware of mm-hmm. your communication strategy. Um, maybe a difficult conversation with someone, but even then, it's someone you typically know, you're familiar with, and you know, you're talking about your problems oftentimes, which is easier to, to talk about in some circumstances. But doing that in a circumstance where the person in front of you is suffering in some capacity and you don't have any information about them as a human being, and they have all these expectations coming in of what you do and what you know you, you have to offer, and shifting and crafting that narrative to be individualized to them is just so difficult. And it's such a, a huge mountain to climb and a huge thing to overcome. Um, So you said, like, watching other people communicate has been one of the things that you've found useful for yourself. And I'll say, like, for myself as well, for sure. But I feel like for me, I get more metaphors and more, like, things like that from watching other people. And I haven't gotten a ton of truly, like foundational communication like it's more of these one-off like oh I like how you use that metaphor about the map to explain you know the brain or explain pain or whatever Um, but what what have been some things that you've done maybe from a reflection standpoint or from an intentional like strategy to improve your communication
0: yeah um, well I like that you said intentional because you know as you're talking through some of these things it's not easy, and it does have to be intentional, and it does take work. It takes reflection, that kind of thing. Um, and I think a lot of times, like, I think of times in the past where I'm going into a conversation, I've brainstormed exactly what I'm going to say, I have a script in my head, and then it comes out all jumbled. And so one thing, I try not to do that anymore, <laughs> kind of like have a script, you know, ready to go. Um And honestly, just like listening, like if you just sit down and listen to someone, get them talking about themselves, people want to talk about themselves, you're going to get the information that you need, Um, and just kind of seeing where it goes. And just kind of going back to, you know, the first time you're meeting a patient, yeah, you have information you need to get, you have like objective measures that you need to get down, But if you forget one and it's not like the end of the world kind of thing, you can get that next visit. But if you kind of screw up on communication day one, that's a lot harder to kind of get back. Um, So I do try to really make it a priority, try to connect with them, relate to them in any way that I can. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I feel like that's a really good, that's a very valuable insight in terms of like when you look at, when you look at, taking a person's entire evaluation and crafting you know, an initial plan of care or an initial day based on what you've learned in the evaluation process. The objective measures that you take are often just in support of a lot of the subjective information that you get. And taking the extra time to listen and ask, you know, like we've talked about this all the time, ask the fifth, sixth, and seventh follow-up question going down a certain rabbit hole about, you know, how a person feels about their beliefs regarding their pain and, you know, what they feel like is impacting that experience. That's when you get, like, a ton of incredibly valuable information that will really shed some light on what you feel like is going on with the person and why they're having these issues. And that typically far outweighs the value that you get from any objective measure that you can really take outside of very certain, like specific circumstances. And so if you can take even 70% of your evaluation time to really get to know someone, and then the other 30% is just getting some basic, you know, physical performance measures, range of motion, strength, you know, some, some specific tests or take a look at how they move on on top of a very good understanding of who they are as a human being and what they're kind of going through, you're going to be fine in kind of guiding the path forward. I think where a lot of people get lost is feeling like they do need to check all the boxes in their objective, you know, tests and measures and, and measurements in general to inform the plan of care. And a lot of times that just doesn't have anywhere near as much of an impact as the more personal, you know, contextual factors behind why they're going through what they're going through. And sometimes that's not important either, right? Mm-hmm. And not as important. Like, some a kid comes to you, he's a baseball player, he sprained his ankle last week. He just was immobilized and now he's out and ready to go. You know, probably he is going to be perfectly fine and you do need to take some objective, you, know, you want to take some range of motion to track that or whatever, mm-hmm. you don't need to dive 40 minutes into his yeah. beliefs. <laughs> you know, um, you obviously want to get a baseline understanding of where he's at and what maybe he's worried about. Uh, but apart from that, you don't have to go too deep into it. But the circumstances where you do need to get that information, you don't want to have missed it mm-hmm. because that's the thing that's going to – you know shed light on why 4 or 6 weeks from now you're still having trouble and this person is not getting any better and it's cuz like oh i didn't find out that this major life event happened 2 months ago when they also started having pain or you know this thing just happened in their life and now they're having to you know, be more physically active to take care of this loved one. And like things start to make sense. You don't want to be six weeks into the plan of care and finally find out that, you know, that circumstance or that event happened. Um, So yeah, that's a great point about listening and about valuing that subjective assessment more than the objective stuff. Cause you can always go back to the objective stuff down the road. It is hard to go back and like ask not necessarily that it's hard but I find that the initial evaluation is a great time to really foster an open environment um, it's hard to seem closed off to have your computer in front of you to be balancing two three things not actually listening you're interrupting you're just trying to get the information and then the next visit try to foster an open environment mm-hmm. like that first evaluation day is is important for that um, what else is there anything else that you found has been helpful on that end
0: Hmm. it's definitely still a work in progress for me um yeah i just i try to reflect as much as i can probably too much on a lot of my patient interactions and even like jotting down notes like i'll talk to you after i'll jot down notes like hey i want to address this next time as far as communication goes or like Oh, that would have been a good follow-up question. So just always kind of reassessing, trying to grow in that area, I think it's a good thing.
1: Yeah, and I, I think this is where the reflection process is obviously important, but especially early on, I think reflecting with someone else is super important mm-hmm. because you know, as as I'm going through residency process and I do live patient exams and have these kind of interactions. And I'll go through an interaction and say, this, say the patient told me, you know, um, I, I got divorced you know six months ago. Uh, so I have t- and I've been the one taking care of the dog. I didn't used to do that. And I also, you know, my wife took the car, and so now I'm stuck with this smaller car and it's not comfortable and I have these long drives. And now okay, you're getting this information. But if you maybe just stopped at like, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that you guys got divorced. Now I'm uncomfortable, let me go on to the next thing. Then in the residency process, they'll be like, well, what changed in their life after they got a divorce? And it's like, "Mm, I don't know, I didn't ask because I just didn't want to go there. But had you gone there, you would have found all of this stuff out that would have provided some valuable context to the circumstance. And it's the same thing, like with you, there have been instances where you say, oh, Max, this person said this thing to me. And I'm like, oh, what'd you say when you asked him this very <laughs> obvious and clear follow-up question? And you're like, damn it, I didn't ask. And then I'm like, yeah. And then you go kind of go back and ask, and then you realize like, oh my God, that opened mm-hmm. up a can of worms that did kind of highlight a lot of things that now I look at this case very differently. And maybe I do change the way I approach things. Um, so I think that reflecting with someone else and having someone question you through, you know, what did they say when you said this? What did you ask after this? And that can be helpful in, in getting some insight on, like, man, what should I have done there? Um, then in terms so like, stepping maybe away from the communication thing. Uh, because that can be, that could be its own hour, two, three hour long podcast in itself. What are maybe some other challenges that you've had just like day to day kind of physical therapist type stuff (laughs) in this setting or in previous clinicals?
0: Um, well, one thing you and I mentioned earlier is kind of like stress management. Um, so like day to day for me, especially being here just since. I kind of choose to put in some extra work kind of outside of, you know, the typical eight-hour day. It's hard for me to shut down when I go home. Like, like there's a lot of things I want to continue to research or brush up on or just kind of put some extra time into. Um, So for me, one of the biggest struggles has been just kind of shutting off when I go home or on the weekends kind of thing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so do you have any... I mean, so on one hand, obviously, like we've talked a bunch Mm -hmm. of times that you want to be able to manage that stress, right? You want to be able to not let the experience become overwhelming to the extent that now the level of anxiety that's associated with the experience is going to hinder your ability to like really participate in a way where you feel like I'm able to give it my 100%. At the same time, you know, you're in grad school You're learning in the clinic for a brief period of time before you become licensed to practice as a healthcare provider, and you are now responsible for people's health. So on one hand, it's like, yes, we want to manage stress. On the other hand, like you're doing a lot of stuff with reading outside of here, with exposing yourself to new ideas, and that comes with some stress. But at the same time, that's going to come with a ton of professional growth and growth that will radically impact the way that you can practice in a few short months, right? So on one hand, it's a negative thing to some degree. On one hand, it's a positive thing. You certainly don't wanna be like so zen that you're like, yeah, as soon <laughs> as I leave, I'm able to completely unplug and never think about it again. Like you you think about it to the extent that it drives you to maybe put in that extra hour of work or that extra mile with stuff but you want to make sure that you're you know you're still doing things that are important to you you're still seeing friends and family outside of maybe COVID times um, you're still exercising and you know you have the things in place that you need to to make this thing sustainable but you're still putting in work because like I said at the end of the at the middle of next year you're gonna have your license and be responsible for people's health to some degree. And obviously you want to go into that as, as prepared as you can. Um, is there anything you've done, like anything that you've done that has helped you stay away from maybe tipping into the higher anxiety side and obstructing your learning experience?
0: Yeah, I think that's a really great point too, because obviously, You know, you're paying for all of school and you're paying for what you learn in the classroom and everything. But I really think like the most valuable thing, when you have a good quality clinical, like that's what you're paying for. You're paying to be out on clinicals um, and get that experience. I think for me, again, the biggest thing is just having people to go to and talk through things when things are getting stressful or I'm not really managing it the best on my own. I'm a big reflector. So we've talked about how that can be kind of exhausting. Um so just understanding like what to reflect on, what to get from it and then when to just kind of, you know, set that aside not set it aside, but you know, kind of be done reflecting on that. Yeah, I mean,
1: yeah, you got to stop at some point. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can't be you can't be at dinner
0: exactly. with
1: your significant other or your family and like just be incredibly stressed about something on clinical mm-hmm. um and you know you, you do obviously want to try to avoid that um to some degree but i think that i i feel like you've done a better job than you probably <laughs> think you've done um and the reality is like i think people go into clinical sometimes and i did this as well where i was like i'm so glad to be done with didactic mm-hmm. work studying it's going to be great i'm just going to have a full-time schedule you don't want to let yourself get too far out of the mindset of like, hey, I am still in school. I am still paying for this and I'm still a student. So I'm not working a 40-hour work week. I'm working that and if I need to, you know, doing some extra stuff at the same time. And so you you don't want to get too comfortable with this idea that clinicals is just like working full time. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, some CIs out there, are a little bit less reasonable, and maybe they do give you a stack of things that they expect you to get done. Uh, I've tried not to be that way. <laughs> there were a couple of days where you know you had off that <laughs> I provided you with some resources to brush up. Just a few. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think, and, and I think that that's a conversation that's helpful to have with your CI too. Like you just have to. They were students at one point. Hopefully, they're not just just not so malicious to say that. You know they have no respect for your level of fatigue or, or whatever and you know having an open dialogue with the ci of like look i feel like i'm getting to a point where you know this is becoming stressful or unmanageable from a time and effort standpoint i feel like i'm having a hard time i want to meet the requirements and i want to exceed those requirements but can you help me maybe troubleshoot? how to make this more sustainable for me because right now I'm getting to a point where it's honestly getting hard to keep up with a CI shouldn't fault you for having a hard time they should if they're good at their job and they actually care they should help work with you maybe they say look this is just what I require of you I can't reduce it I'm not gonna reduce it but maybe here's how we can adjust your schedule to make it a little bit more manageable. Or here are some things that I suggest to make it a little bit more sustainable. Um, and maybe that they, they do help you achieve or accomplish the same amount of workload with you know more relative ease, if that's possible. Um, maybe they're just not nice and, and that's unfortunate. <laughs> and that that's possibly a conversation you have with the school. But um, what about like, what about PT-related things, not as a student? Like, now that your life mimics to some degree what a practicing physical therapist would. Like, any challenges that you didn't anticipate? Documentation, balancing multiple patients at once, maybe maybe the thought of, like, certain people who are in pain who, you know, maybe you're thinking about outside of work. Like, what are what are maybe some other things that you probably won't be done with as a student, but that you're realizing are challenging things to navigate.
0: Yeah, I've definitely had a few patients here where I catch myself thinking about them outside of, you know, the work day. Um, And I think that just comes with, like, being a caring human being. Yeah. Um, But... Let's see.
1: Have you had, like, was documentation challenging for you? Was that ever something that you were struggling to keep up with?
0: No, I don't think so. Okay. Why? Mm.
1: Because I'm sure a lot of your classmates would have a different answer.
0: Yeah. Documentation is weird. (laughs) Obviously, so I've had a different documentation system every clinical, which is an adjustment, but... With the way that we learned documentation in school, it was like very, very thorough and like just very long, just on like a Word document kind of thing. In the real world, there's check boxes, like there's a template usually on the system that you're using. Um, and documentation is another thing where I like to read other people's documentation to kind of see what they think is important to include, how they word things, kind of how they justify things. Um, So I've done a lot of just like reading documentation, Mm -hmm. um, just kind of getting a feel for my own wording, my own preferences kind of thing. But yeah, as far as documentation goes, I think just early on getting a good feel for the system and then the things that are important to your CI to yeah. make sure that you include um, is very helpful. And then with that, like if I'm ever have the slightest doubt of anything regarding documentation, I always ask.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, just because it is a, it's, it's a pretty big deal.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, the reality is that not every clinical instructor is going to sift through everything mm-hmm. that you document. Uh, they're probably just going to sign off on it, especially once they get comfortable with you. Uh, and you know your competency with documentation, but certainly, in the context that you think, hey, they may not read this well enough to pick up this mistake. I'm not sure if this is a mistake or not. It's always better to ask because mm. this is like a legal document, and and you know they're obviously signing off on it. They should be reading it, but um, you know, let's be practical here. <laughs> um, I would read it if I was Thank you, Max. signing your notes. <laughs> um, yeah the the suggestion i have for documentation when i was a student and even actually before i started working with precision because it was a new system every single time almost every documentation system has youtube tutorials out there and i would just ask the clinical instructor in the couple weeks beforehand hey what's the documentation system and i would go on and watch like an hour or two of different tutorials on like here's how to create a daily note here's how to add a new patient here's how to you know write an evaluation and here's the check boxes and and then i went in and i already kind of knew like i was sort of familiar and it took me a week and then i was like okay i kind of know where most of the buttons are and where you know to complete at least the very basic note writing um so i would suggest for anyone just like reach out figure out what documentation system and watch some YouTube tutorials or if they have any specific tutorials. Like I know WebPT has their own in-house things that you need to log in for, but um, that's one thing that I did that I found was helpful. How about uh, in terms of like day-to-day skills, just like the process of balancing multiple patients at once or having a particularly busy schedule, is there anything that surprised you Transitioning from academia to the clinic setting from that standpoint?
0: Yeah, I'll say from transitioning from school to my first and even the beginning of my second clinical, I found it really hard to, like, not necessarily time management, but just like keeping track of the time and what's happening and what we're doing. Now it's, like, kind of, like, innate. Like, I kind of know how many minutes have passed and kind of, like, what we have time for and that kind of thing. Um, Because depending on, like, how much time you get with a patient, I found that I would – it would be, like, an hour and a half in, and I'm like, oh, we should have been done 30 minutes ago, (laughs) kind of in my first clinical. Um, So that'll come with time, just kind of getting used to that. And then working with – multiple patients at once honestly isn't that bad. I yeah. don't think it's that bad.
1: So we'll <laughs> preface this because I agree with you that I don't even think that one-on-one is the standard of care. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that's necessary. In our specific setting, in our population, which is a generally more active um, and athletic population where you're not having to worry about risk of falls, risk of you know cardiac events, a- And things like that more than just what would be kind of advised per general safety guidelines what I mean by that is I can ask one of my patients to hop off the table go over here grab a kettlebell and let's do some goblet squats and I don't have to worry about guarding them obviously so having two patients at once is not particularly challenging if they're both as able uh, as that in settings where maybe they're more hospital-based and balancing multiple patients, you may have two fairly at-risk patients. One of whom, you know, maybe has difficulty balancing. The other of whom you want to monitor vital signs a little more closely, or be getting more consistent information about symptoms and you know how they're feeling with certain things. Other settings, it can be more difficult to balance two patients at once. Um, Or or three and and it may even be impossible or just completely ill-advised in those circumstances which is why they will typically have aids or PTAs to assist in that higher volume kind of flow of things but I agree with you I I just don't (laughs) think it's that hard here and I think it's honestly better because patients tend to get to know each other when they come in similar Mm -hmm. times and then there's almost kind of a supportive atmosphere or environment from a culture standpoint that is additive to the process, rather than you know people desiring a ton of privacy with the with the process. Um, final thing, I what do you have to suggest to students going to the clinical rotations in terms of like materials that they can purchase or bring that will maybe make them more prepared for clinical? Like if you had to give a, a buying list. Here are the five things you should buy that will set you up for your clinical rotation.
0: Like study material or like just things?
1: Like, so I have, I would think at the top of that list would be a a good watch. Mm. It could be a smartwatch, like a Fitbit or or an Apple watch or whatever. Or like I had for my clinicals, particularly in acute care, I just had like a $50 G-Shock watch that was super durable, but it gave me like a, I could keep track of time, like you said, which was challenging early on. But then you also have like a quick stopwatch or a quick timer if you need it. Um, So my suggestion would be get a get a decent watch um, that will be reliable for you in the clinic. Uh, Anything along those lines, like a journal or a computer. Like for me, watch and a mouse for my computer. The (laughs) mouse has increased my documentation speed tremendously. You that mouse i know
0: um i would definitely say a watch um doesn't have to be anything fancy um, but i think most people have like smart watches like apple watch now anyway um so yeah i use my watch a lot a big water bottle <laughs> would be good um good shoes like even yeah. if you're in a quote-unquote normal outpatient clinic where they're not typically wearing like sneakers they have like Comfy shoes now, so yeah, get those.
1: Yeah, a watch, a water bottle, a mouse, some good <laughs> shoes, um, uh, quarter zip. I think mm. I didn't have any when I started my outpatient rotations, and uh, I have since bought several. The like quarter zip is crucial.
0: Yeah, a good journal or notepad is good too. I tend to, I use my laptop here, so. I just keep a running daily like Word document um, so that I'm not taking too much time kind of searching through documentation, especially with evals and I'll just word vomit whatever I need to go back to it later. Um, and then usually I have a notebook that I just do like personal reflection in.
1: Yeah, I think that that is a, a very, very valuable tool. I was, I was expecting you to say that one <laughs> um, and that that's good. So I'll watch. A big water bottle, a mouse, a journal, and
0: quarter zip, quarter zip slash shoes. shoes.
1: And if we did one on the on the podcast for fashion already, (laughs) and uh, stretchy pants, stretchy Ah, Lululemon like
0: stretchy pants for sure.
1: Kind of, I don't know, whatever Lululemon athleisure. Yeah, whatever athleisure (laughs) you need. Um, not every rotation will let yeah, girls wear true. like leggings, right? Uh, I think that's Pixie fairly pants uncommon. at Old
0: Navy. Those are pretty Pixie squishy. pants <laughs> at Old Navy. There
1: you go. Um, guys like the Lululemon Commission or ABC pants look just like regular khakis, but move just so much better. So anyways, go listen to the fashion one if you want actual good advice from Nisha, who was our fashion expert on that episode. Um, anything else you want to suggest or recommend
0: um i don't think so i would just say just get the most out of your clinical experiences um you get what you put into it obviously like we said don't overwork yourself but understand that it is a short period of time that you should be working decently hard
1: yeah you get what you put in even if it's not the setting that you want to be in ultimately And I feel like that's something where everyone's so worried about being placed here or being placed there. Guys, you're going to learn from anywhere that you get placed if you want to. Even if you're in a clinic that practices like it's the 1970s, guess what? It's like you're able to go in a time machine back to the 1970s and see current practice back then. And that is incredibly valuable from a perspective-enhancing standpoint to then be able to see kind of the history of it and then, you know, embark on improving upon that and, you know, pushing the evolution of clinical practice towards more of an evidence-based realm or, or whatever it is. But every rotation, I think, has the opportunity to enhance your perspective even if it's wildly different and you're in acute care or acute rehab and you just understand what health and fitness does or what the lack of it does to your morbidity and mortality rates and the levels of disability down the line so then you go back to your outpatient rotation and you feel so much more of a sense of you know importance or urgency to really promote these behavioral changes so there's, there's truly a perspective you can gain from every clinical experience that you're on. It might not be the most fun while you're in it, but like Hannah said, just take it for what it is and find the ways that you can learn from it um, and, and make it worth your while. And then don't get upset that the person next to you in class got the rotation you wanted. Like You can get the job that they want down the road if you put in the work now. Anyways. Any anything else or are we good to go
0: i think that's it i'll just one last thing i think a big repeating thing was having someone else to be able to go to and reflect with in multiple areas i think that's huge so if you have that at your clinical take advantage of it um if you don't reach out to someone else uh, maybe yeah. a professor a colleague
1: yeah totally join join communities like clinical athlete Forums on there, level up initiative, like those are, are amazing resources for uh, students and clinicians to be able to get that active reflection process that they may not have physically near them. But I'll, I'll, like, yeah, i like you, I've learned a ton and had a ton of valuable insight from avenues online and from people I've kind of rubbed elbows with online. So that's that's certainly a viable. Uh, supplement to the current like situation that you're in regardless of where you're at um, so cool hopefully you guys got some some insight on this this is going to be the last episode in the concluding uh, podcast for the student struggle series if you guys have any questions for myself or for Hannah uh, where can they find you Hannah?
0: Um, spt.hannah on Instagram
1: and you can reach out to me at um maxlepage.dpt on instagram or at max at precisionperformancept.com for email i um, mean you can always find precision performance pt uh, on the internet, so look us up if you want to get in touch um, hopefully everyone's staying safe staying healthy and we'll talk to you guys next time bye thank you for listening to the training room talk podcast we hope today's discussion was helpful in illuminating some of the complexities behind pain and rehab If you don't know where to go from here, please reach out to us with questions. We have mentorship options for clinicians and students and programming options for you to elevate your own fitness. We look forward to speaking with you and again, hope you enjoyed today's discussion.